Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us on yet another episode. Today, we're going to talk about software testing, quality assurance, and how all of that stuff falls um, within the software development lifecycle. I have a very special guest today with me, uh, Maret Puhayarvi. She is a principal test engineer at Faisala. Uh, she has been in the industry for 25 years. That's like a couple of decades and, and a little bit more than that. Uh, she has a wonderful career. She is a public speaker. She, uh, a fun fact about her public speaking is that she spoke in about 28 different countries. That's, uh, <laughs> that's an achievement all by itself. Um, and we're going to discuss the relevance of testing engineers in the modern software development lifecycle. This is something I'm personally quite curious about. Um, I've seen both ends. I've seen how quality assurance engineers can add tremendous value to the software uh, practice. And I've seen how they can also become bottleneck. And today we're going to explore all of this with my guest. Maga, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great being here. Of course. Can you tell me a little bit more about how did you begin your career in tech? 25 years ago, uh, I had just gotten out of high school and I had just started my studies in Helsinki University of Technology. And uh, while I was in high school, I had studied the Greek language. And someone decided that because I had studied Greek language, and because I had somehow managed to get into a university of technical nature, I could probably operate a computer. That was kind of the idea of how much you needed to know about testing when you got started in testing. Uh, you can operate a computer. Uh, you can read, well, I could read the Greek alphabet. And they had me test as my first project ever. They had me test the Greek office. So uh, localized software, that type of testing was where I started off. And then I kind of, at some point, I decided uh, no one likes testers and no one appreciates testers. And I became a developer for a while. <laughs> then I realized that uh, no one actually uh, appreciates developers any more than they appreciate testers. Uh, we always seem to kind of like think uh, that, you know, it's easier somehow for, for the other roles and it is never. And uh, I decided that instead of, you know, being a tester or just a tester, I'm going to be one of the best testers they can be. And I'm still on that journey. So that's my story. That's amazing. I love that. And I, I, also, I also relate to the idea of uh, thinking that things are greener on the other side. I recently did the switch from consulting back to software engineering, thinking that things are going to be a little bit smoother. Turns out, no, it's just a different set of challenges. <laughs> and that's uh, it's always fun to see. All right, Marit, over the past 25 years, how did software testing evolve? I'm sometimes wondering uh, if it was evolving uh, because of the 25 years and, and kind of like the life changing and, and the world changing, or if it just evolved because I ended up meeting new people and it was always kind of like everything was always around. Like one of my favorite quotes uh, in the whole world kind of is, is this idea that uh, the future is already here. It's just not equally divided. So maybe it was already there and I just didn't pay attention to it back then. But uh, what has definitely changed are things like continuous integration and continuous deployment. Like we actually fought those very hard against those back in the days. Kind of like, you know, when you carefully select your changes, then you can carefully test each and every one of them. And now we know that uh, rather than creating those bottlenecks or creating those kind of like uh, gates that you 
you uh, have that may basically prevent you from doing the best possible work for your customers. You want to actually think the other way around. So we've definitely learned this one. But I also think that uh, some of the technologies that we have have made it a little easier nowadays, open source in particular. Uh, how can you elaborate a little bit more on that last point? Uh, especially on the testing field, we have so many nice tools nowadays available. Uh, it used to be that we had these proprietary tools where you had like a limited 30-day trial and you never had time at the trial time. You always learned about the tool kind of later on. You had to uh, already make the choices of what tool you would use and whether you would pay for the one-year license minimum for your organization quite early on into the evaluation of a tool. So we didn't have this possibility of kind of like, you know, taking Lego bricks. Like I like right now I live in this kind of Python ecosystem where there's, you know, PyTest and you can take a plugin here and, and you have the ID and you can take a plugin on that one and, 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 you know, just build and build and build whatever you you're ready for on that day. So you can get started on kind of quite easy, but you can build basically indefinitely. And, and back in the days, it felt like, you know, the box was much more rigid. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. I can relate to all of that. We have uh, uh, fancy toolboxes now um, made bigger and bigger by the contributions of a lot of amazing people in the, in the industry, for sure. How did we, so if we look back at software engineering or software development as a practice, right? Like we have people who imagine, think, design, and then they write the implementation of something they have imagined, right? Uh, we write code. How did we end up in a situation where we needed the intervention of people who are purely focused on testing? I think we got to this basically two different directions. One is that, uh, well, when you have 25 years of experience, uh, it's kind of easy to think in terms of, of having just, you know, one year of this and another year of that and another year of that. So when you're getting started, you need to start somewhere. And, and typically when we start, we just end up with some component, end up with some kind of task, end up with some kind of responsibility. And it made sense for many people that they would start from the, the angle of testing. That's one way that we, we ended up with this. Uh, some people grow from testing to development. Some people grow from development to testing. Like these are not rigid boxes, just like the, the component that we use, they're not rigid. But the other way we, I think we ended up with this one is, is that uh, we've started to appreciate that even after 25 years, uh, we may have a limited bandwidth, limited scope of things and like you said like you talked about this like creativity and design and all of that like for me as a tester when i look at an application it's kind of like my external imagination and it speaks to me it gives me hints on, on what to do and what kind of things to look at and uh it's, it's the same creativity just kind of targeted a little bit differently when we have collaboration that's definitely helpful as well Walk me through that a little bit. Like, uh, so for example, both you and I were collaborating on a project, right? I, um, let's say I worked on the design aspect. Do you get involved in the design phase as a, as a testing engineer? Yeah, typically I do. Like for example, maybe some examples from, from the last couple of weeks at work. Uh, at the design uh, stage of a REST API, we are talking about kind of like, what is the API called? Like what's, what's the endpoint name? And, and 
in this particular case, there was this idea that we would use verbs as, as, as those names. And, and I come to that conversation with like, hey, have you noticed that these are always nouns and the verbs are always fixed? And that there's this whole model of how it makes sense to people and how they think around these. And this is how, you know, like, like people who don't really understand what it is, how they integrate. So I do participate in kind of like those insights into that question. And again, anyone could say those, but it's a lot of times I just happen to be more focused on that kind of consistency and, and ease and, and, and experience type of aspect and bring it to those conversations. And another one is is very typically things like uh, the continuous integration pipeline. It's kind of pushing stuff through continuously, like it's really continuous, which means that uh, our dockerized environment is continuously restarting, which is not a problem. You can use it, you know, nice handoffs, very fluent in, in that sense. But uh, we also have certain components that are restarting uh, uh, that wouldn't be restarting in the same way in production environment because we wouldn't be necessarily pushing as frequent changes there. So we have no knowledge of, of long-term perspective of testing. So kind of like, you know, just suggesting that we, we don't, well, we would have another environment where we don't do continuous changes so that we have those aspects of production. Just reminding people of, of all the kinds of things that we need to fast forward to have a representative well, users and stakeholders, different kind of stakeholders, perspectives. Let's say things evolve a little bit. We start the development uh, process. Uh, we have some uh, deliverables that are already maybe ready to ship. Um, where do you get involved? Do you get involved then again? And how, what, what form does it take? Uh, I usually get involved before the business decides what we're going to implement next year. So I, I get involved actually earlier than the developers. I'm usually helping uh, make sure that the estimates that no one wants to make are safe enough so that we can all be successful in it together and that quality can be included. So again, kind of looking at things from the, the point of view of, of the end game, I, I usually bring that perspective already very early on. So if there were contracts, I'm usually in the contracts. Now it's the business process, kind of like the next year's planning. I'm involved in that, whereas not all of the developers are. Uh, when we have a new feature, kind of like we're adding new capabilities, I'm usually part of that conversation. But sometimes I don't need to be part of that conversation. The developers can take care of it by themselves. And I just might kind of like, you know, come into the end and, and help them kind of just, you know, make sure that if there is still perspectives, I can add that we could add there. So uh, I prefer if I'm kind of all the way through there and, and a typical release, we just made a release this week. I have some nice numbers that I've been bragging about all week. Uh, we had 100 pull requests that we merged into that particular release. It was fairly small time frame of, of a release. We've been working on getting it shorter. And the release time frame, uh, it uh, was now two days. It has been 27 days the last time we ran through that process. So kind of like this, you know, improvements also on efficiency and, 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 and knowing that what we're promising. Of course, I love that. Because there's also like a wide misrepresentation of the industry as a whole. Not everyone is doing continuous integration. More importantly, continuous deployment and delivery. There are a lot of companies that 
pretty much cannot do that. Uh, there are companies that are highly governed, they are regulated, uh, where you cannot really ship just whatever the developers are ready to ship. And there has to have to be specific release schedules and things like that. And this is where the game of trying to optimize and have more frequent releases come into play. Uh, I'm not sure what industry you are in. Is it, does, it, does that represent? Uh, aviation right now. Oh yeah, that, that that makes sense, and obviously this is one of these industries where things cannot go as super super fast as SaaS uh, companies, for example. But I would also think that uh, to some extent that's something that we have created as an industry, and it is something that we can try changing as an industry. So uh, to some extent, for example, with security related information that keeps coming up all the time. Those industries in particular shouldn't be blocking uh, the continuous change. But on the other hand, uh, us in teams building that software, we need to be doing a lot better in being trustworthy towards those industries so that it can ever change. So I think that's a particularly good example where uh, you can do faster release cycles, but you need to first build the, the trust because it's actually the trust that is missing rather than uh, the regulation driving it. Interesting. I love this perspective because I always felt that this is actually the case. It's a matter of different departments not trusting each other and maybe stakeholders not trusting their own teams uh, to deliver quality software. Um, and then whenever something bad happens, which is inevitable in software, pointing fingers uh, immediately starts to kick in and people just become a little bit more risk averse. And then they start implementing all of these processes in the hopes that they would prevent these future problems from happening, but it never really works that way. Can you tell me more about, about that? How do you think we can establish more trust in between teams? How can we build it? And how can we become more efficient? I believe it comes through practice. Like when you have to go through multiple releases and, and you get to work with the same people or the same organization and there's a track record of, of you, know, you know, doing a good job, caring for you know, both sides, uh, understanding the, the uh, quality that the customer is expecting and needing and understanding what kind of things cause trouble and what are easy and, and easy to fix. Uh, I think that's kind of how you build it. Like, so I've been thinking about a lot uh, about this kind of like, um, I think in terms of results gap, uh, that there's this kind of invisible area where everything surprises many teams, developers in particular, and then uh, testers are very often working with that results gap in trying to kind of make it visible. And I think the same results gap is making the customers uh, test organizations, acceptance test organizations in particular, not trust whatever we are delivering to them because they have a different life experience, different perspective, and, and they're worried that we might not know what they actually need and, and mean. And uh, we keep thinking that by controlling that change, we could somehow make it better. Like, well, those customer organizations keep thinking that way. But actually, when they get smaller changes, uh, they can control that rate of change actually a lot better. So more frequent is safer rather than the other way around, but uh, it takes time to get this message across. Awesome. I have a challenging question here because um, I think we, we end up sort of in a chicken and egg type of situation where the existence of a quality assurance team uh, creates sort of this behavior for software engineers where they can say, yeah, there's a team that can take care of testing. So why should I bother with testing myself? 
they, they will take care of it, right? And the lack of a team like that might force maybe developers to actually engage in deeper, heavier, more, uh, you know, uh, testing efforts, let's say. What's your perspective on this? I've seen that so many times. It's one of the forces that I need to work with continuously. Uh, the first thing that I, I do usually is that I don't have a quality assurance team. I have someone who uh, knows a little bit more amongst the developers uh, who does work in the quality assurance space and hopefully is also someone who wants to kind of a little bit break those barriers of, you know, my work, your work. But uh, if something needs to be kind of centered in that person's life and work, and you get to do those prioritization choices, I'd like that person to be someone who centers testing and quality instead of, you know, whatever the, the other ones in, in that moment tend to center. I've been in teams where uh, it feels like, I feel like sometimes that I'm the, you know, the mother who is attending to the children who drop the pizza boxes in the middle of the living room floor, and that the they, those children think that my role as a mother is to kind of point the, at the pizza box and say, no salami pizza boxes in here, no that kind. And, and again, like, you know, a week later, it's again salami pizza box. And that's definitely not the work that I would like to see people who specialize in testing doing. Uh, but sometimes uh, it really takes these challenges. I remember this one lovely colleague that I had uh, in, in an earlier company, and he said that, you know, he likes me. He likes me a lot. Like I th he thinks I'm a great person and he doesn't want to make me unemployed. So that's why he can't test. And I said, like, you know, uh, a challenge accepted. If you can make me unemployed, I'm happy to find a new job. But I'm pretty sure. And well, turns out so far I've been at least, you know, uh, uh, right about this. I'm pretty sure that we're going to have bigger systems and bigger challenges that we need to deal with. So whatever work he does in this space it's not away from me it's actually for all of us but these are common conversations that we need to have so i see a lot of engineers who only do quality assurance type of work um, they've been pivoting towards more testing automation um, irrespective of our ideal model this type of profile exists um, do you feel like a testing engineer can be effective if they're not if they don't are not very much involved in the code base or do you think the fact that they're not involved in the code base gives them a nice fresher perspective where they can explore the software in a in a, in a better way that allows them to identify problems so it really depends on the rest of the team and what the rest of the team is and needs uh, like what kind of gaps we have so a lot of the teams that i work with they benefit from having a product owner as well someone who talks to the customer and really understands what the customer is saying and what the customer cares for and somehow kind of like you know brings home the the the, the important information that the customer organizations again we might have millions of customers so there's a lot of analysis work in that space you know that's valuable work as well. So I, I believe that uh, we can, and you know, in many organizations, we do have testers who actually spend more of their time in that space, kind of like as a second and a pair of the product owner rather than, than the developer's pair. So there's many kinds of testers. But uh, in guessing what might go wrong, if you don't know about architectures, if you don't know about technologies, and if you at least can't work closely with people who who spend most of their time in, in that that area, I think you're going to have trouble eventually. So we touched upon 
you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Um, how can we really achieve that if we have testing engineers uh, involved? And I think you already brushed on how you not really don't want to become a bottleneck in this entire process. Um, can you guide me more towards like, how is it done in the modern world? Uh you can put things, well, first of all, you can put things in production without them going through the test engineer. The test engineer can work with the version in production to make the next version in production better. That's always a possibility. Uh, also, uh, you can kind of like uh, pair up with people. Well, pair up the people so that they work together on the change, so that you would have those those things that you are concerned about quality-wise in that moment. Like for example, when I've been doing ensemble programming, I've really enjoyed the fact that I'm kind of like you know I, I get bored very easily looking at go, code with the developers. So I've been sometimes saying kind of like uh, we we did this this uh, it was like a user interface related change that I, I'm thinking of right now. And they would always kind of open the Chrome browser because, you know, routine, Chrome browser open, and then you check whatever you had there and, and you see if your elements are in the place where you wanted them. And I was like, oh, can you just open it in another browser for a change? Like, you know, I'm so tired of this Chrome. And, and we found some bugs in IE, which I made them use for the next 15 minutes. That was the maximum they would have used IE in that moment. But it was just the right moment for them to kind of fix the IE problem and then go back to Chrome and not have the IE problem. So, so kind of like, you know, when you have these hunches, like if you're really good at, at going close and, 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 and working on those, those uh, continuous changes and the risks that come out of those, that's where, where you can do it. But also it's never too late. Like you can and you should still improve the software that is in production. And it's kind of like a, quest of time on are your customers telling you about the problems are your own people telling you about the problems uh, maybe it's you know doing analytics from the production it's equally uh, stuff around uh, figuring out what might be wrong right now so sharing all of that work you can do that in many ways from your description it feels to me like it's more of a mindset than it is really a set of skills that people can actually adopt do you agree with this perspective I do agree with that. It's much more of a mindset and, and kind of like just holding space for quality. And uh, in my current team right now, we just decided not to hire a tester. There was a position for tester open. We hire yet another uh, software developer, and I'm very much for this. They're uh, kind of throwing this, this uh, uh, challenge to me, saying that, uh, uh, you know, you make us the best testers ever, and each of them takes two months at a time, so they get now focused time on where they don't have to kind of like make big promises on the features, but they can actually work on kind of improving the, the system and, and, and collaborating more uh, with the types of things that I would normally be doing. So, you know, I would love for teams to do more of that kind of work, but sometimes the systems are so big that we kind of we want to draw the barriers of this is my interests and we need other people who are kind of more focused on the fuzzy gray areas like the dependencies that we didn't create that we can't fix anyway, but they need to be tested as part of our system anyway. You know what I find a bit fascinating is that a lot of the testing efforts previously and quality, what we claim to be quality, focuses a lot on the end product outcome or what is visible to end, end users and customers. I have rarely seen people involved in guaranteeing quality of the code base, for example. 
taking care of technical debt, uh, reminding people that we actually have to pay off technical debt and whatnot. What's your perspective on this? Is this something you and your team are involved with as well? Yeah, I do a lot of that. There's always these choices of like, um, I've been asked to do like so many managers ask me to do kind of like test cases or test automation on top of something where there's a lot of technical debt. And then I work out a way of, of communicating with the team that instead of adding single tests, you know, any tests at all, we should be actually fixing some of the things that are causing the reason of us needing those tests. And, and it's, it's a continuous uh, effort that uh, I think, well, if you can see the, the bigger picture, kind of like the, the balances of you can fix this or this and you will have the same impact. If those are the conversations that your team is capable of having, you're likely to do better. But a lot of organizations, I find, uh, put their testers in particular in a position where they just tell them that you need to now automate the test cases. This is your job. And while I can say no after 25 years, I could already say no after 15 years. I also remember the old self that I had, you know, me, younger me. Uh, it was much harder to say no. And again, when you're hired to do a job, saying no to the job you're hired, uh, it's, it's, it's not the easiest thing to do. 100%. It's funny because when companies hire, they are hiring you because you should be the expert in a certain area. And then they bring you in and they tell you exactly what to do, which kind of defeats the purpose of, you know, hiring you as the expert, but well, they should be listening and implementing what you have to, what you have to say. Um, they think they know better. Anyway, I, I totally relate to uh, whatever you're saying. So stakeholders and maybe CTOs or higher level executives, they want to have some insight over what's happening in their organization. Are there ways to measure the quality of software, for example? Um, is this something you, you think is feasible? If yes, do you have any metrics? If not, why not? I'm asked of this a lot that I can say. Uh, it's kind of hard to measure absence of something like if you try to measure number of bugs that you're addressing it's not really telling you much about the future of the things you might have been missing so i've been usually trying to solve this well i needed to solve it in my previous uh, pro product here in, in Vaisala. and i've been solving it by having uh, three months and six months kind of like tails after putting something in production on, on tracking what the customer feedback is and whether I can link it back to any of the changes, kind of like doing a lot of the measurement work afterwards. That's not what they really want. They want something that could give them, you know, like a blinking light saying, now there's a danger, I can do something already right now. Uh, uh, but at least it helps in understanding whether you are doing a good job or not when, when you're following that. And it, it usually means that I need to for example, I needed to ask for accesses to systems that I normally don't have access to. The support systems are usually separate. I needed to uh, take time from my day-to-day -day stuff on current features to look at something we already, everyone else has completed six months ago. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But generally, my idea with metrics is that I'd like to focus on change. So without change, well, change can make things worse, of course. But without change, we can't get better. We can't have more, we can't have better. So I usually have my metrics that I, I provide the managers around change 
a number of merged pull requests, uh, time that pull requests are waiting. Uh, if we are reviewing and actively working on them, that's a whole different thing. But generally, if we have smaller changes going through, we are doing a better job at looking at what the change is and avoiding breaking uh, anything uh, particularly surprising. So I look at those kind of things. And it also gives me an idea of, of productivity and, and kind of like the, the flow through whatever software development system we have ongoing right now. I don't want to report bugs. I have actually put a lot of effort into uh, not even writing bug reports if I can avoid it, like getting a developer and, and, and pairing with them on fixing something so that it can just vanish. It shows up in a pull request, but, but nowhere else. And uh, yeah, I find that all the test case metrics, absolutely you should not. The only reason to count numbers of test cases is to show that you're not losing any of them when you're going forward, uh, but that you're kind of keeping whatever you had and, and, and growing from that rather than, than taking them away. Have these um, metrics that you just uh, listed, are, do you feel they are effective or are they just calming to managers without necessarily being too They are valuable. calming, yeah. more calming. They're, they're not signal per se. Yeah. Interesting, because like intuitively you would assume that the number of pull requests merged could be an indication of the team performance. Uh, but the problem with that is that there are so many variables that can affect this. Maybe the changes are too big. Maybe, um, I don't know, the, 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 the requirements were not clear when we were trying to build this and that affected like how long we wanted to deliver. Yeah, for us at least, like um, the way that we like to think around the software development team is also that we want to discover some of the requirements. We don't want to get them kind of like, you know, readily chewed from someone. We want to actually be there to, to figure them out. So we always take some time on what we call discovery work. Uh, we try to not have too many items of discovery work ongoing at the same time. And we have conversations around the pull request numbers on, on kind of like, oh, we were, you know, this weeks we were really focused on, on discovery of these new features. And, and kind of like just then balancing on, on is this the right uh, balance between discovery and delivery work? And sometimes, particularly in this organization, we uh, have a um, we have a request to overanalyze early on, uh, and 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 this whole conversation of balance is the best thing that those metrics can can give us, so that we can steer. So a lot of organizations have adopted a I don't know how to call it, but it's like a weird version of agile, right? A lot of organizations even misuse the term agile. They think that by just implementing a, a waterfall version of Scrum, <laughs> they are doing agile. What's your, what's your perspective, first of all, on the agile methodology? And the second is, what is your perspective on how it's being implemented in some of these organizations? I started working with the so-called lightweight or agile methods in 1997. I was a very, very early adopter. I was a researcher back then, and we were researching uh, small companies and their software processes. And Agile, uh, the emerging Agile back then, seemed like the only rational thing to look at. Uh, I went through multiple companies, big Agile transformations. Uh, I decided uh, to change my mind about never wanting children because Agile was so bad at early uh, stages of it. And uh, nowadays, my take is more on the side of if I can avoid talking about Agile and just talk about smart ways of working, 
uh, I would prefer doing that. It has really become this kind of like, a, uh, like we think we mean the same thing, but we don't even know what we're talking about anymore. And that happens when you have 20 years of global conversations on a thing that was never anything other than a, a fuzzy idea in the first place. Interesting that you say that because it feels like now with the amount of coaches, companies offering agile training and the safe methodology and all of that fun stuff and the tooling that exists around this, that this is more of a concrete battle tested type of uh, approach to work. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's not. And it's sad to hear everybody complain that this doesn't really add any much value to their, to their way of working. I joined this team of mine with, that I'm working with mostly right now. Uh, I joined earlier this year, well, start of this year, actually. And I joined because uh, they had some trouble implementing their agile and, and, and testing and all of that stuff was, was kind of fuzzy. Being able to deliver was kind of fuzzy. And uh, I remember that one of the first fights that I needed to really go through with some of the people in the management is uh, Scrum versus Kanban. Like, do we have to be able to promise things for the next two weeks? Uh, and I got, uh, with my status and my, my, my prestige, I got uh, through this uh, humorous for a few months. Let me show you how Kanban works. So we got to this kind of continuous flow and, and, and a lot more freedom in, well, we don't do estimates, for example. It was really difficult to get rid of that. And now uh, in the last four weeks, we've been doing no Jira. So uh, we have our product owner uh, creates a couple of Jira tasks on Epic level for himself so that he can report on us externally with those. But the team itself doesn't touch Jira anymore. We uh, come to daily meetings with a lot of energy and figure out what's the smartest thing to do next. And when we get something done or we get stuck, we talk to each other and, and we don't write Jira tickets and they're not in the wrong uh, state and we don't have to have all those conversations about them being in the wrong state and and again this was something where it was supposed to be catastrophic according to some people uh, and it turned out to be a major improvement and I've been thinking a lot about this idea that uh, it's great that you know I can show up and say we're going to try something different and I can kind of get that through to some of the people who decide but it's it's so sad that that's not always heard from from everyone else because I think we have good ideas and when we get to implement those good ideas that we have, we tend to feel more responsible for the results and the results is what matters in the end. 100%. I love hearing this because also, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, it all boils down to trust, right? Like if you trust the people who are working, you're not going to have issues thinking that, oh, they're wasting their time with this, they're wasting their time with that, I need to micromanage every single moment, and I need to make sure that they're working the eight, nine hours a day because I'm running a mining operation and everybody needs to, you know, sort of deliver on, uh, on every single minute of their waking hour. Uh, while effectively, if you let teams be a little bit more loose and you hire the proper people, right, in the first place, um, then they would be much more effective than when you treat them as if they are just a cog and a big machine and they need to deliver very small, specific chunks of work at specific periods of time. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm going to challenge this a little bit and play the devil's advocate. 
So let's say you are a CTO in a company, you have your board asking you for timeframes of deliverables of certain features, for example, or maybe even big projects or changes. How do you communicate this to your board if your teams don't report back or report upwards estimates and timeframes? How do you, how, do, how could you reconcile this? You, they can still report what comes out of the pipeline, even if they don't report what they thought they can put into the pipeline. So again, continuously delivering in small chunks, looking at what's the value that we have there, seeing uh, whether we are finding more work, uh, if we can kind of improve on the, the understanding and, and doing just the right things, doing the smaller thing that would actually serve the, the business already. Uh, I think we already have those, those things there. So in some organizations, I've kind of like created lists of like, you know, let's go back the whole year and let's list all the features that we have as organization delivered in the last year. Then we do uh, after the fact estimation. So like, do you remember when we did this feature? How big was it? Like that's when you know the most about the feature because you've already built it. So you can give an estimate on, you know, how big it was. It was, it's no longer guesswork. It's now remembering work. And, and you don't have to pay a lot of time, money, as in time, in creating those numbers, because basically you just ask people, and, and if it's not so accurate, it's not super accurate, that doesn't really matter. So instead of kind of continuously trying to measure it, uh, you can do a cadence after the fact where, where you can have some kind of numbers. And you can ask the same thing on business, like one of those experiments that I did in my previous organization, I listed all those features and I gave it to a business and said, how valuable were these features that you asked us to deliver? And it was surprising how the smallest things that they actually even didn't want in the first place turned out to be the more valuable ones. And the ones that they kind of, you know, insisted and, and prioritized and put on the roadmaps hadn't yet even started paying back. So we had really good conversations on this kind of like after the fact estimation. Uh, I think there's plenty of ways that we can figure out how we can have those conversations that don't rely on uh, making us do guesswork uh, on scale. 100%. And, it's, and it is guesswork. Uh, like I see a lot of conversations about number of story points. And I think these are just ridiculous, like if they happen in a team. Someone says three story points, someone says five. And if you ask every person, what does it mean three story points effectively, right? Everybody will have a different answer from the other person. And it's just funny to see uh, these things in play. I know a lot of people hearing this will be offended. I'm sorry, but it's a good reminder to <laughs> revisit your practices and uh, look at how you are actually doing things. Um, perfect. Marit, I want to look a little bit forward into the future. Um, but before we do that, can you tell me a little bit more about what exploratory testing is? Exploratory testing is this idea that you don't separate things that belong together so that you can have agency. And when you can have agency, meaning people can make their choices, they can actively learn. So your previous test can have an impact on the next test you do. And instead of kind of following a plan that you did when you knew the least, you are continuously improving and creating that plan 
and, and taking in whatever you're learning. So some people say it's kind of like you do uh, multiple things simultaneously, but it's not really simultaneous. It's, it's kind of like a processor. It's, it's not like processors, single thread processors do things simultaneously. They just move between the threads quite fast so that everyone gets a little bit of execution time. And usually as you become more senior, your processor of, you know, doing something in the background and doing something in the foreground, uh, it evolves because you're learning. And that's kind of what exploratory testing also is about, that you are fine-tuning that processor of yours continuously. Interesting. And how do you feel, or what's next actually for software testing and software in general? We are seeing certain trends like machine learning creeping into our day-to-day, AI software writing pieces of code. I work at GitHub, we have released Copilot recently. I was a bit skeptical about it at first and then I started using it and I'm like, hmm, interesting paradigm shift. So what's your perspective on all of this? I think all of this is related to the fact that systems are getting bigger and more complicated and we need some kind of productivity tools. So uh, they probably will change, shift a little bit, kind of the, the type of problems we will have. I also have enjoyed Copilot a lot. I've been playing with it and I've been doing some uh, training sessions where we use Copilot as the programmer and all of the developers in the group are being the testers because now it's not giving you the tests, it's only giving you the created code and you are now the tester who is responsible for someone else's code. So it does that really nice kind of like, you know, twist of a mind. I will tell my the team about this. That's a very interesting use case. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing to do. Uh, but uh, I don't think I'm expecting kind of anything big. I'm just expecting that, uh, well, the future is already here. It's not equally divided. I would hope it gets more equally divided. Uh, I would hope that some of the things that, uh, you know, small groups have good experiences on would get uh, to the majority, the laggards, the masses as well, and uh, that everyone gets to enjoy software development a lot more. Because I also think that uh, one big challenge of the future is that we will still have work to do for people. And uh, software will need new people continuously. We need to have those newbies who don't yet know much, but will know a lot by the end of of their career. Uh, We need to have them started. We need to help them grow. So uh, I'm sure there will be a mix of different technologies that we're looking at at in different places, but there's not like a a massive one technology that I would be expecting. I'm hoping people learn to be nice to each other and and collaborate more. Maybe that's my my hope for the future. I hope so too. Um, The last question I have for you, Marit, is um, what is your advice for engineers who are still doing traditional quality assurance testing type of work? Um, how do you think they should evolve their careers? Usually the people who do this traditional work, they expect someone else to give them requirements and then they're behaving like secretaries to the person who gave the requirements and checking those. Uh, Their customers know whether it works or not without reading those requirements. And they are not more stupid than their customers. They can and they should be taking more active role in providing that that feedback. So uh, no matter what they do, they should be taking new skills. And there's such a selection of new skills that you can continuously pick up on that it doesn't have to be just automation or just particular type of automation. There's a variety of options. 
Margaret, this is fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, your insights, your experience, and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Uh, I've really had a blast uh, talking to you. It's been great being here. Thanks. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, 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 oh